Vodka. 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 Vodka o'clock. Hey everyone, it's Amber Love, and you are listening to the Vodka O'Clock Podcast, and apparently a dog. Um, so now you can sponsor the show and the website through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked, and you can pledge as little as a dollar for creation. So Coming back to the show today is Elsa S. Henry and her lovely companion. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We actually have uh, an extra dog visitor right now, and that was just mischief you heard. Oh, okay. So this is just um, a, a temporary dog situation? She, uh, she is staying with us because a friend just moved to the New York area and uh, needed somewhere for mischief to be for a little bit. So I have double uh-huh. dog right now. Okay, so this is not um, a, a service dog? Nope. Regular house dog? Yep, just a regular pup. Excellent. And you still got uh, the kitty? Yep, we've got the two kitties, and uh, Miss Julep is still here, too. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, she's a really sweet dog. <laughs> um so I have Elsa back on the show because um, if you follow uh, any of her feeds through the various networks and whatnot, um, and we're going to talk about your, your cool blogs and stuff, um, you'll know that she's been writing a whole lot lately and has a lot of plans and things that she seems to be incredibly busy creating stuff. So uh, I thought since uh, it's you know National Novel Writing Month, it's a great time to talk about different types of writing and Elsa can fill us in on how she like writes games and things like that. So, um, how are you doing? Cause you seem busy. I, I am busy. I, I had planned to take this fall off from freelancing and plans never go the way you think they do. They're going to, um, my plan had been to spend the entire fall working on my novel. Um, and I'm doing that. Uh, it's The first draft is almost done. But in addition to that, I've ended up working on uh, two freelance game projects and one non-freelance project with Evil Hat. So I'm working on three books right now, and that had not been my plan. <laughs> okay. And um, now the novel, I'm assuming uh, that that's simply your work and not like a joint venture correct um the novel is just me working on it um i'm hoping to have it ready to start querying sometime in the early first quarter of 2016 okay but then when it comes to these other projects they sound like um like they involve a lot more people yeah they do um i uh i'm working on the accessible fate core toolkit which is basically i'm creating um a handbook for players in the fake core system to play characters with disabilities um but the really neat thing about the book is that it's not just limited to characters i'm also working on creating space for players with disabilities at the table so the last chapter of the book is actually about accessibility in in your own home games Okay, that's great. I know that it was one of the things that we've talked about before is about convention accessibility. Yes. And how important that is um, and how sometimes it's just a matter of uh, things that other people 
take for granted because even if a building, for example, like the Jacob Javits Center, even though the building is accessible and there's an elevator somewhere, the crowd itself basically makes it seem, um, as far as walking impairments go, uh, it's impossible. Seem impossible. Yeah. And I know you went to Gen Con and were working on like getting a new wheelchair and everything. So, yep. What you know? How are things improving, or are they just not improving at all? Well, I mean, I think it's accessibility at cons is going to be a slow game. It's really it's a long con. It's uh, it is it the buildings, or do you think it's the organization? Well, it's a combination of of three things. The buildings themselves are only sort of a hand wave to actual accessibility. So it's like you pick a building for a convention and that's one thing, but not every building is fully accessible. It's only mostly accessible. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example that everybody's heard of. But I guess my best way to put it is if you have a single step going into a building and you have a ramp after that step, that's not accessibility. So if you if you have an elevator with a difficult lip to get a wheelchair over, it's not technically an accessible elevator. So it's little things that stack on top of each other to make places less accessible. But the, the buildings themselves are less of the issue. It's more about creating a con culture that um, supports having disabled people attending events. So it's it's about re-educating our con communities to make space. And that's what takes a long time, because re-education takes forever. Certainly. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, when I think about the crowds, I think of walking impairments. But I know you write and, and work on blogs for visual impairment and um and i there's a couple people that i follow on twitter that talk about hearing impairment and i'm also hearing impaired so uh, these are different stipulations that someone organizing games and organizing panels could consider um you know i don't know if it's financially feasible for everybody to have something like you know a person signing at the front of the room Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I'm encouraging con committees to do is to look into getting ASL interpreters, but more importantly, to look into if there are ASL schools, if there are college programs for interpreters. Because what you might end up with is that there are people in your community who are learning how to be an assigned interpreter. There are people who are trying to get practice and a con can be a really good place to get a couple hours of service time in as a, as a volunteer. You're not doing um, someone's business, so you're not doing the most important translation that exists, but it gives you time to get a real-time experience. So I encourage a lot of conventions to look into that. Um, there are cons that do have... Uh, interpreters at their events. One of them is Geek Girl Con. Um, I was just there in October, and I had an interpreter at every single panel that I ran because all of my panels had to do with disability in one way or another. Okay, so how did you find that person? I didn't. The the convention did. 
Oh, well, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, no, the convention has uh, sign interpreters at their events, and they don't go to just the disability events, but they go to some of the large ones. And if you were hearing impaired, you could request that the interpreter be sent to the panels you want to go to. So having those opportunities for people is a big step. Because that creates visibility for accessibility in a way that other things might not. Because again, changing the culture, you have to make sure people realize that people who need disability access actually exist within your culture. Well, I recently, um, it's only been the last couple of years that I've heard about things like quiet rooms being, uh, you know, a, a particular room set aside at a convention for um, where you are not supposed, like it's literally meant to be quiet. Like you go in there and you remove yourself from all of the stimuli. Yep. And um, apparently, and because I've never, I've never been in one, but apparently the green room for celebrity guests is often considered to be, you know, intentionally quiet. So I, yeah. there was um, a comic book creator who had said recently that, you know, somebody, it's not that he wasn't flattered to talk to, to the person, like somebody was trying to talk to him and ask him questions, but the whole purpose of him wanting to go back to the green room was to be quiet and to eat and just, you know, actually rest. And um, I guess it was just, there was, you know, maybe a staff member was a little bit zealous and just wanted to talk to him and meet him, but... <clears throat> Um, I, I don't know if that's a common thing among shows. Like yeah. I said, I've only heard of it fairly recently. That I wouldn't know. Gen Con had its first quiet room this last year, thanks to the efforts of Jessica Banks and um, a couple of other people. And I was really happy to see that. I don't really like quiet rooms because they also tend to come with low lighting. So I tend to not use them, but they are a really great tool. And is there any sort of issue? I don't know if if you've seen this. I mean, I, you if you travel as much to like Gen Con and Geek Girl Con, I know that you're flying across the country. So uh, there are all kinds of horror stories with American TSA <laughs> getting through um, the screening points in the airports. So when you have take on something like attending a convention. What kind of challenge do you really go through from door to door? Okay. Um, So my prep for travel starts two days before I even leave. um, Because I have to make sure that I have all of my medication. I have to make sure that if I need refills, it's done. I have to make sure my wheelchair is working. That's really important. And if it's not working, then I need to get it fixed. I pack two days before I need to leave so that I can check everything again and repack if I need to. Um, The day that I fly, everything is... um, It's probably one of the more stressful things that I do for work, to be honest, because uh, I travel with my own wheelchair now, which is great. And that means that basically the minute that I'm in the airport, I'm in my chair and I, I can self-propel uh, without having to jostle around tons of other people. 
But on the other hand, it means that I have to trust the airline to not break my wheelchair. And that's been a real issue. Um, the, the airline companies are not gentle with wheelchairs, and they tend to also be somewhat um, condescending towards travelers with disabilities who aren't, who are traveling by themselves. You tend to get infantilized. You tend to sort of be looked at like you're a child. And so there's a lot of um, excess caretaking that happens. So what I actually find the most exhausting about travel is that I'm in a lot of pain, usually. I don't do well on planes. Um, And then I have these people being like, oh, we can't leave you alone. Do you need us to help you take you to the bathroom? Like, no, I'm fine. I'm an adult. I can get myself to my taxi. I can get myself to the bathroom. I can get myself food. But it it becomes this really stressful thing of having to interact with a lot of people who think that they know better than you do because it's their job to assist you through an airport. Am I making sense? Absolutely. And I've often, um, I've sort of, always just given them the benefit of the doubt that they're trying to be so nice that they're overcompensating. And instead of just saying, let me know if you need help, they don't get to know where it is that there's such a varying degrees, you know, like there's such var- there are people who, you know, maybe their, their arms don't work as well, right. or they have one really good arm and one not so good arm or something like that, you know? So, but if you're not traveling with a caretaker like a nurse or some kind of assistant, then I think that maybe they just get flustered. Well, and I think they do, but I also think that just culturally, uh, as sort of a society, we look at disability as a binary. Exactly. You're either disabled this, or you're not. Or you're not. And this is a big problem with like people that get notes left on their cars for handicapped spaces. Yeah. Um, you know, like a friend, it happened to a friend of mine, but she has asthma to the point where she can't breathe sometimes. Some days she's perfectly fine. So she has a handicap placard and it's like, you can't get, it's just terrible to have notes left on your car that you're not disabled enough. Well, we get that a lot because, uh, we do have a handicap placard for our car. We don't have a handicap placard because I can't walk. We have a handicap placard because I have cataracts and, If we are, and I have a very small field of vision, getting me across a parking lot is really scary for my husband because I can't see cars coming. And when it's dark out, uh, headlights can completely blind me out and I can't see anything. So putting me in the disability parking spot is actually the safest way to get me in and out of this building. But we've had people be like, but she's not in a wheelchair. We actually had one person say she's not a cripple. Oh, And my husband, yeah. Uh, Amber's met me in person. Yeah, yeah. And I've done, and I've taken you shopping, so I know the experience. (laughs) My my husband had to um, pull me away. (laughs) I can only imagine. But do you think that that's um, because of the logo, the handicapped logo that's used as a person in a wheelchair. Do you think that's just a case of, you know, leftover bygone era uh, imagery? I think it is. I mean, I think we need to find better symbols or we need to use more of them. 
Like, I would be perfectly fine with having the blind person crossing symbol on my placard so that people knew what disability was in the car. But I also imagine that if we had a blind person in the car placard, someone would be like, but you're not allowed to drive. Exactly. And then my response would be, no, but I'm in the car. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not for driving. It's for if, transit. If they can make signs for um, pregnant and new babies, pregnant, pregnant moms, new baby signs right? that I've seen at the shop rate. If they can go through that, then they can maybe come up with something a little bit more universal that just means, you know, for assistance. Yeah. You know, like something, some sort of more, I don't know. Something more universal. Yeah. Yeah, I I think the other problem really is, is that when people, we also don't have a language about wheelchairs yet, but that's uh, really relevant to what the wheelchair using experience is. Um, I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago called A Wheelchair is Not a Toy. Uh, it's up on feministsonar.com. And it was about the language that we use around wheelchairs and why it's really important to pick your words very carefully. Um, a person who uses a wheelchair is not in a wheelchair. They're not bound. They're not wheelchair bound. They're, wheel- they're wheelchair users because a wheelchair is a tool. Okay. I can remember, you know, as a kid, my great-grandmother had a wheelchair just because she was very, very old. Um, And, you know, and it was one of those things where it was so, it it was almost never used. So the one time I can remember coming out of the garage was like, it is a toy. We were like six and seven years old and we were pushing each other up and down the sidewalk in it and nobody stopped us. Well, I mean, for me, it was a toy, too. I had wheelchair races with my dad in the hospital when he was sick. But I, I think the difference is that when you're kids, it's different. When you're an adult, you need to think about it more like it's a tool because the perception changes. When you're a kid, yeah, it's fine to think of it like it's a toy or a vehicle because, you know, it's like, oh, that's, that's a fun thing. And it's probably better for kids to see a wheelchair as something fun than to see it as something scary. Yeah. I mean, and I know that I, before I learned a little bit more, um, I know that, uh, you know, I've leaned on my friend's scooter, like to take photos, like we would pose for photos together. And it just was one of those things where the arm of it was there and I leaned on it. And I think because we're really close that it probably didn't bother her or she's, but, you know, I have read so many blog posts since then of people saying, don't ever do this. I'm like, oh, crap. I did. Well, I think it's different when it's your friend. I think it's when it's someone you don't know. I mean, I've had people who I don't know lean into my chair for support at cons. And I'm like, I'm right here. Also, you're sliding me across the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. I aggressively throw my brakes. (laughs) Oi. So there's, yeah, so I agree that there's, you know, the, between the, the airports, I think, are their own set of problems. And then there's the convention, which, you know, are just as, have varying degrees. I've been to some small shows, like, you know, we have over in Morristown. And then, you know, monstrous nightmares like the Javits Center. Yeah, I mean, my, my rule now is, is that I really only go to cons for work. Um, I know a lot of people who do it fun and i'm just like no that's that's too much stress 
It is a lot of for stress. me to do that for fun. So I, I've had friends who were like, hey, we have an extra pass to go to the NYCC this year. Do you want to come? And I was like, no, I'm not doing that to myself. I'm not working. I'm not going. Yeah. And, you know, plus to get to New York, which I don't know how it is around other cities, but um, I've seen how difficult it can be finding the specific train platforms that actually are accessible because not all of them are. Yeah, I am are. lucky in that the train station closest to my home is accessible, but not all of them are. Yeah. And, you know, and I, again, that's just speaking of, you know, from a, a wheelchair perspective, like, I don't know other issues. Um, like, if you, if you read anything in Braille or, or, you know, because I know that you have some visibility. Yeah, I don't, you know. I, my Braille use is very strange. And I fully acknowledge that. Um, so I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that that's used Braille before. So yeah, I don't, I've, I don't use it much. Um, I use it to tell what what uh stop i'm getting basically i use it in elevators <laughs> okay i use it in elevators i use it on my on my braille d20 um i use it mostly for stuff that isn't reading it's more situational for me okay for something that's just like a, a quick um icon yeah because for me most of the time when i need something read to me i'll just ask a friend like hey uh i can't read that can can you tell me what that says but braille is a tool for me when it comes to navigating things like hotels is i don't know if you've noticed but a lot of elevators are really dark oh yeah i guess so and so i can't read most elevators uh numbers and rather than sitting there and counting, I figure I'll just use Braille. <laughs> okay. Um, and you brought up the uh, D20. So is that something you made or are they easily able to like find There's those? actually a Kickstarter going on right now for a Braille dice um, situation. Uh, it's Fantastic. being done by 64-ounce games. Um, I just backed them... I didn't get the dice because I already have my own, but uh, I should probably at some point get uh, Braille D6s, but that's later on in my plans. Because um, I really like the large print dice, dice I have now. But yeah, they're doing, so they're doing 3D printed um, Braille dice. And I got one of their D20s from a friend as a gift. And it's quite useful. I see that there. It's a much bigger size. Um, yeah, I mean that's part of why I don't. Fint it. That's part of why I prefer my large print. But even my large print dice are huge. Okay. Um, I probably would not be planning to play anything with dice pools anytime soon. Yeah, I guess there's you know just things that you you have to take into consideration like okay well this is going to take up more space which means something bigger that i need to carry yeah i mean i <clears throat> i also have realized that there's a microaggression that i've experienced based on my dice which is that when i run a game i actually ask my players to use large print dice so that i can see what they roll because then i can make faster decisions and i don't have to ask them to read me their dice 
Aren't they very defensive about their individual dice? They yeah, Well, that's why it's a microaggression. Okay. Because I'm asking them to adapt to an accessibility need. Okay. And what I get back is, but I like my dice. That's great. I'm sure you have great dice. I can't see your dice. Okay. Um, and so I imagine if you have a regular group, that's not the sort of thing that's a problem. But when you're doing like, a, you know, guest, uh, you know, dungeon master roles. And yeah. When I run that. stuff at cons, occasionally people will be like, but I don't want to give up my dice. Yeah. And my, my role ha- rule has basically become, yes, I appreciate that you like your dice. I can't run my game as effectively without being able to see what you roll. And part of why I've done this is because I've had people lie to me about what they roll. Oh, that's terrible. And so I've, I'm just not interested in playing that particular game. Of having, because it happened once, I, I said to somebody, hey, what did you roll? And they told me that they had rolled really well. And then another player looked over and went, no, you botched it. And I wouldn't have been able to tell. So. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I mean, I, apparently that's it's human nature to cheat, which I did not realize until about maybe nine years ago when I had heard about um, Magic the Gathering tournaments and that, uh, you know, the reason that the judges are are there and like eagle eye on every table, because to me, I was, uh, you know, as somebody observ- observing this, right. I thought this was like insane. I'm like, well, they're just playing, playing a game. I realize there's money involved, but, you know, why the real, you know, why the judging at that level? And, you know, when I heard, well, there's counterfeit cards. What? I'm like, are you kidding me? There's counterfeit cards? But apparently, you know, it was it was something that people, I guess, have tried to get away with, you know, as home printing technology advances. They're just, you know, you can buy cardstock. You can run something through your own printer. And, you know. Wow. You, you can make something look really legitimate. And it's a completely bogus card. So, um thinking about how you know how you need to be able to see what the role is it's it's the same sort of thing it's as if you're saying okay well these are the rules for being at my table Mm -hmm. you know and it's not even it's not even to do something other than remove their superstition yeah and i mean i try to be respectful about it but at the same time like come on you want to play with a blind gm you kind of got to play with the rules yeah. And, you know, I think that just that's what it comes down to is the fact that somebody is going <laughs> to cheat at a game and then cheat over a blind <laughs> game master. It's like, wow, you are a certain kind of low. I just <laughs> that's terrible. I, I, you know, I don't even think it's terrible because I'm a blind GM. I just think it's ridiculous. It's like, oh, so you see an opportunity. Well, great. <laughs> um. So yeah, that's that is something that I've dealt with, but I also just think, you know, I get that there's a superstition involved. I get that they buy their own pretty dice and want to show them off, and I, I appreciate those are things they're feeling too. Right. And now this is, might sound like a I don't know, 
ignorant question, but is there are there tournaments that are specifically for disabled gamers? Um, there's the Able Gamers Charity, and they do some video game stuff, but I don't know of anything tabletop related that is disabled gamers only. Okay. And when it comes to your role as a game designer, uh what you know you have to go to conventions and you have to do presentations and discussion panels and things so what is the i guess is education the biggest hurdle that you get for, with people or is there something actually like more physical that's your biggest hurdle as a game designer i mean as a game designer i'm at a number of disadvantages because i'm a woman and i'm disabled and there are not a lot of... I mean, there are more women game designers now than there were when I was a kid. But it's still a minority. And I, there are not a lot of disabled game designers either. I can kind of think of five uh, of, of them off of my head. And there's five of us that I can think of. And that's a small number in a community that's... I mean, it's a small community. But it's big enough that that's still pretty tiny. Um... And we all talk and we support each other, but I think a lot of what I'm doing, a lot, a lot of what I end up doing is even less education in terms of how to make games accessible physically, and more about how to make disabled representation important to people. Because I, I keep saying that um, the, the most important thing to me is creating visible acce- visible accessibility, because psychologically, it's really important to be able to play in games where you can see yourself in the world. And there are so few games where that actually is something I can do. Or something that somebody else with a disability can do is see themselves in the world. So that's been actually quite a hurdle because people will ask me, like, well, why do you need to see a wheelchair-using character in a cyberpunk game? Because disability shouldn't be erased. And that's a hard concept for some people to understand. Is it the right thing to do when it comes to, say, superhero characters where their disability is like, is their superpower in a way? Um, I've seen this done a lot and I've uh, there was even a, a parent who put out a Kickstarter book regarding his son um, to show that his son's uh, autism was um, actually, I think it was down syndrome was like special for him or something where they sort of twist it and turn it into a power, like with daredevil's blindness. Oh, daredevil is so much more complicated. I don't, to me that just almost feels like it's erasing. It is. Disability erasure is a big issue in the nerd community. Um, Daredevil is my personal pet peeve. (laughs) Uh, I gave an entire hour-long talk about this at Geek Girl Con, so I could do this for an entire show. But the short version, I'll give you the sort of elevator pitch of why I don't like Netflix's Daredevil. Which, I'm very specific to say that this is my Netflix issue, because... I haven't read the comic because it's not accessible to me. Right. I can't read comics. (laughs) Right. So this is, yeah, a TV show thing. Right. I mean, even then, when people tell me that Daredevil's not really blind, I want to smack them. 
And this is, but this is how he's presented. And I've read very little of the comics, mind you. I've, I've read some, but not very many. Um, and when I first think I saw Daredevil in a cartoon, I didn't even realize he was blind. Um, because that's how much it's, it's made off like it's his power and right. not. Well, and it's also. Challenge. So. It's not even that the blindness is his power. The issue is that his powers are so strong that his blindness doesn't matter. And so the problem there is, is that he should still be blind. If you want a blind superhero, then the character still needs to be blind, even if they have superheroes, I mean, superpowers that help them navigate the world with their disability. So, a really good example of a character that I love that's a superhero and has blindness is Toph from Avatar. Because earthbending is a way to cope with her disability. She can literally bend the, the ground under her feet to get around. Okay, I don't know anything about that show or the, the book, so I'm, I, uh, I'm interested. I've never seen it, but this is what I've heard about it, and that actually makes sense to me. Her superpower, or her, her power, or whatever it is, is something that she can use to adapt. Because disability and living with one is all about having to learn how to adapt to the world around you. Right. And actually, I'm so glad you brought that up and that specific word adapt because I was doing research for a character for my NaNoWriMo for this year. And at this point where I am, I have not written his disability in Mm -hmm. and I'm still unsure whether I should because it's just a guy who works in an office in like a sales department. Like there's literally no nothing special about him he's just random good looking guy that you would see on a tv show right. uh, and i was going to give him a prosthetic leg because i have them off on a retreat like with those corporate team building things where you do trust falls and you you know you try to knock each other off a log right. that kind of stuff and i was going to have him be a really active athletic person who happens to have a prosthetic leg and write that in and i discovered for for myself because I didn't know what it was called that it's called a, adaptive whatever fill in the blank adaptive rock climbing adaptive yoga um it's called an adaptive uh, like the term is for a tool is an adaptive device okay um so yeah a prosthetic leg is an adaptive device so i was um just looking up youtube videos <laughs> on this and uh, this is perfect absolutely perfect timing for me to get to talk to you um when someone is crafting a character that they don't have any experience with personally, you know, it seems so easy to fuck it up. Oh, yeah. That it's almost like the easy road is to just not try and then face the blame of not having diversity. Yeah, I mean, I encourage people to do research. And again, this is part of why I'm doing the Fate Accessibility Toolkit. Because I want people to be able to play disabled characters. I want people to explore what it would be like to have a... Well, I've got one character I'm currently writing for the Lovecraft Ask book. Um, She is a blind uh, mythos scholar. And she finds the only copy of the Necronomicon in Braille. And 
Um, so I'm writing this whole thing and I'm using, uh, I'm talking about what Braille feels like when it's been taken over by sort of the old ones. And uh, it feels like tiny vertebra moving underneath your fingers, if you were curious. Oh, that is interesting. And creepy. Um, yeah. That's something I I hadn't thought of. And um, only because it probably wasn't until, I don't know, uh, you know, I was already a full grown adult that I realized I, I asked somebody, I was like, is sign language the same everywhere? And they were like, no, it's American sign language or whatever, you yeah. know. British sign like, language is significantly different. And it's actually really interesting because I have some friends who are over in Great Britain and they try to sign to me, and I'm like, nope. Oh, okay. I don't know because what the, that means. <laughs> for as much ludicrous stuff goes on with the TV show Bones, they actually did cover that in one episode where they said that even within America, there's dialects, just like with our spoken yeah, language. Yeah, actually, um, there are I'll have to send this to you later, but there was a... Um, I think it was a BuzzFeed list, but someone did a BuzzFeed list of the different way of uh, older ASL speakers and younger ASL speakers and what their versions of new words were. So older ASL uh, signers use one sign for selfie and younger ASL signers use a different sign for selfie. So it can even be within age groups. It oh, can change. yeah. So these all these things when you're the creator you need to find out like I didn't like I said I didn't even know the word adaptive I looked up you know like um something like handicap rock climbing to and then I started coming across the right words so your research if you're like me and you have to start from nothing because I was too dumb to ask anybody I'm too bashful and ashamed oh, um, half the time you should definitely look up cheetah feet by the way Oh okay oh I think I I think I, is that those um Blades, there's blades they've got a couple different names there's blades there's cheetah feet um but those are those are the ones that people use to run like oscar's pistorius is blade runner because he uses blades okay because i remember there was a model um like she had this big you know spread i can't remember which like outlet or magazine it was um but it was showing off all of these different prosthetics for her and like the different designs and how like some of them are like fake tattooed and you know and because she's already stunning and with professional stylists and photographers it makes everything look spectacular it's like can your average person do this or look like this or get this device that they need well getting the device that they need is really the problem because um financially Getting access to uh, adaptive devices is really challenging. Um, our our medical system is still pretty balanced against people with disabilities in terms of financial support. Um, so, like for example, I saw this photo of a athlete running with a little girl, and she's on cheetah feet too. And my first react, many people were like, oh, that's so cute and inspirational. And my reaction is, yes, and she's going to grow out of those in a year and a half, and then she won't be able to run. Oh, no. Right. <laughs> so it's like, well, yes, it's really cute. But the problem is, is that she, I don't know if her parents will be able to afford continuing to get her cheetah feet every time she grows. 
So we don't have systems in place to support support, but at the same time, and this is this is where I get on my soapbox for a second. Kids aren't the issue because there are a lot of systems in place to support children with disabilities. The problem point is when young adults with disabilities turn either 18 or 21 because all of your services disappear. Okay, so there's so there's the Social Security Administration does not um you have to reapply you have to way. reapply and if you can work like for example, I'm a full-time writer. I don't get social security because I work. I can't get social security. Okay. Um and I haven't been able to since I was 18. Cuz I had it I when had I was a kid. kid. So when you turn 18, all of these services go away. The one that was really scary for me was the fact that I lost um, the ability to get assistance with having hearing aids. Um, most states require insurance to help pay for hearing aids for children. Hearing, but hearing aids are normally not covered by insurance. That seems incredibly strange. I remember thinking it was strange as somebody who wore eyeglasses, where I'm like, I'm not choosing to wear these as a fashion statement. Why is this not covered? Right. You, you know, so I, uh, but yeah, my dad's going through that uh, with his trying to get hearing aids too, but he is covered as a U.S. veteran. Exactly. So, um, but no, like my mom wouldn't be able to. Young, pe- young people with disabilities are at a real disadvantage in our country because they don't have access to services that they desperately need to get through college. Um, so many young disabled people just stop being able to wear hearing aids once they hit a certain point in college because they wear out. Hearing aids are really only good for between four and six years. And that's if they're you know, properly taken care of and not accidentally, like, put through the wash or something. Right. And, I mean, I had one of my... My hearing aid just randomly broke one day. It fell out of my ear and shattered on the floor. I didn't do anything to it. It shouldn't have done anything like that. It had been dropped once before and it didn't shatter. But for some reason, that time it did. And then the warranty was out. Of course. Yeah. Well, the cat stole it once. Oof. Cat... So, um, he was good at that. And then I think one time it went through the washer. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's hard. So hearing aids are one of the ones that I, I feel like people who are not disabled have a really, um, good entry into understanding the issue with hearing aids, because if you can hear the idea of simply not being able to hear by virtue of your insurance saying no, is really drastic. So as a, I just wanted to pull this back to being a creator. So if you are not, if you don't have the personal experience or have a friend that, you know, I've become much more aware of, of wheelchair issues because of a couple friends. Um, So the research that's done for this, that's, is that, how can they get the, the actual personal point of view for something and not just well technical things go on like twitter. you know um i actually go highly on. recommend going on twitter because the thing is is that people there are people who are willing to talk 
So um, one writer had posted on Twitter about a couple months back saying, I have a deaf character in my novel, um, but I don't know how to, uh, I, I don't know how to write them. And I want to put this in the 1940s, so I don't know what that would look like. Um, I was one of the people who responded to this tweet and said, hey, you can email me. I'm happy to educate you on my experience. And I guess she got like three other people who were hearing impaired to talk to her. So there are people out there who are willing to educate you as a creator. You just have to be brave enough to ask. And I know that that's a hard thing to do, but I think allowing people to self-nominate really helps with that. I found that that's um, very true, looking for information on gender issues, for like transgender Mm -hmm. in particular. Um, Twitter has been really helpful. Well, and also just because when people can self-nominate whether or not they want to talk about their issues... I think that's a really um, valuable way to get information because you're not asking, you're not going to someone and saying, hey, you have a wheelchair. Tell me about your problems. You're letting people volunteer. Okay. And now with you as the writer and designer, what are you going, you know, you're working on like three or four different projects at this given moment. So <laughs> let's, let's, let's pick, you know, pick some, something, you know, regarding your characters to, to figure out um, how do you craft your characters? Like, what do you start? So I, the novel I'm working on is about, it is, it is a weirdly semi-autobiographical project. So a lot of what I had to do with this character was actually make her, as little like me as possible. Because the setting is very much based on my childhood. Um, it's about growing up in the AIDS pandemic. And losing a parent during that time. So I spent a lot of time trying to make Millie as um, much my opposite as possible. And what's actually been really hard is writing a character who's non-disabled for me. Because I don't know what a non-disabled experience is like. So I keep writing, I, I kept writing these descriptions of what it's like to grow up in Seattle. And then I would have to stop and completely change it because I realized that I was writing it from the perspective of someone who couldn't see. So I've had to completely envision the city I grew up in, but as a sighted character. Have you been able can you read a, a like um whether it's a a full book or if it's um a story or a game game arc can you tell if the writer came from a perspective like that um like do they do they only talk about sounds you know more do they talk about uh, you know climbing or you know things running more i i don't i don't really see that but i try to just be mindful of what my experience is because i want it to be a full perspective um i actually did just write a short story this year that's called sundown and it doesn't have a home yet uh so if any of you are publishers out there and want to pick it up <laughs> Yeah, then give a call. Uh, give give me a call. Um, but it's from the first person present perspective of a fully blind character, and so I had I wrote the entire story with no visual references. 
Okay. So easy visual references to me are things like color, but um, what other situations would avoid would you avoid? Well, for example, I couldn't make any metaphors that had to do with seeing. Okay. Um, because she can't, she, she doesn't know what a valley girl looks like, for example. So one of, one of the jokes that I make in her internal monologue is that someone sounds like they look like a valley girl, but she's not sure what that actually means. Oh, okay. Um, other things include just your spatial awareness. And that was a lot of what the story is, is describing what her spatial awareness was like. Because she's in a city, I won't, I won't spoil it, but I'll say that it's an apocalypse story. And so there's a point at which she has to get through a bunch of obstacles, but she can't see them. So a lot of it was her being surprised by things being where they're not supposed to be. And I had to keep reminding myself, like, I would go, so this is what it looks like in my head. But now I have to take that all away and think about what it would feel like. So that's one way of, um, the, the, the technique I was using was by envisioning it by myself, as I would see it, and then adjusting it and thinking about what the perspective of the character is. So if I were doing it with no sound, it would be like, I would look around at a place and I would decide, okay, so now what would this look like if I couldn't hear anything? I think it's a, a tough exercise and I, I encourage people to try those things and to try uh, like exclusively taking one sense at a time, for example. Um, I don't know how that would do to add stress to somebody's project like NaNoWriMo where you're trying to do something under a really strict deadline. I don't recommend that because it took me two <laughs> months to write that short story. <laughs> okay. And it's yeah. it's just over 6,000 words and it took me two months. Yeah. See, when I when I think of adding, um, like, to, to reach your word count, because at this point for NaNoWriMo, you're not worried about whether something's good. You're just, <laughs> you're just really, really barreling through to get to the word count so that you have some sort of plot that, that makes sense. Um, so to add word count, one of the pieces of advice that I try to remember, at least during revision stage, is to go back and add sensory detail. And what's really interesting is that the, uh, the podcast Writing Excuses <laughs> just talked about that on their most recent episode, talked about adding sensory detail. And, um, and it did make me think because I'm a visual, I'm more visual. So I'm, I will describe colors or fabrics and things like that. And I started trying to remember, oh, hey, describe the touch also. Like, what does, you know, what does this, the surface of the table feel like? And it, I love adds... describing smell. Okay. I'm, I've done aroma only because my character uses aromatherapy a lot, but I don't know that I'm doing it correctly other than naming the flower or herb or whatever. Well, cause smell can also tell you things. <laughs> smell can tell you things about your environment that you may not be able to see. Sure. I mean, there's, you know, when I think of places like <laughs> the reasons I don't like New York is the smell. Right. We all, <laughs> you know, know, talking... we all know what New York smells like in the summer. <laughs> yep. 
You do. It's and um, it's inescapable on a humid day, and especially if you have to go to the subway where there's no air conditioning. Oh so that's luckily my my characters have not been there yet. <laughs> They've been out in the country, <laughs> and um, and so I'm probably really failing on on my own advice of adding adding that to my environment. But it's it's something that I can do in revision. Like, oh, I need to make this not be so flat. Like, she walked through the door and then she sat at the desk and then she typed this. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I don't want to turn into somebody like um, Tolkien <laughs> either. <laughs> I, I think it would be hard for any of us to just suddenly turn into Tolkien. Um, but I'm fine with turning Dickensian if it gets me a higher word count. <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, I I tend to describe my characters' stupid mundane details of their day bad enough that I, I don't know that I, th- I think I could very easily fall into the, you know, romantic poetry of describing what a candle looks like, you know, <laughs> like, I, and, and just instead of just saying there was a candle. Yeah. I think um, the other thing that's been interesting for me is the, the projects that I'm working on, because I do a lot of science fiction and fantasy work. I'm describing things that don't exist. <laughs> so there's also the, the the fun part of describing things with no visual references or no smell references is that I kind of just get to make them up. <laughs> that must also be really cool, though, um, where if you need a particular type of device or machine or whatever, you can just invent it yeah um so one of the projects that i want to start working on um next year is uh i've got some something with disabled superheroes that i'm starting to work on and creating a like we were talking about with superheroes earlier um the idea of creating superheroes that have disabilities and their disabilities are sort of tied into their disabilities are tied into their powers rather um it, it begins to ask questions of how you make disability something more like magic so like i'm asking questions of people with disabilities like if you were to turn this into a superpower what would it do and the imaginative thinking that goes into that becomes uh, it almost shifts the existence of the disability. Like we have one person who wants to write MS as a disability as a superpower, and so your leg just going numb becomes a part of how your powers activate. That's uh, actually something that I tried to do. Um, a bunch of us were writing our own fan fiction. We were we made ourselves characters, mm-hmm. and. I gave my uh, my character because she was supposed to be me, like you know, crippling anxiety, and um, and I thought, how can I make this useful? And what I did was, um, I had her. She's just so empathetic that the reason that she's affected and broken down 
so often is because she's actually feeling everybody else's turmoil. Right. So, um, and I, and I was sort of, I was really inspired by Rogue from X-Men. Rogue is a really great character. I've always really appreciated her existence. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's something that I think like you can see it in a metaphor, but I don't know how, how on earth it really translates to, to, you know, anybody else reading it. If they, if they see it the same way, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's it, the whole concept is that a couple of us were talking about how cyberpunk makes us feel because cyberpunk can feel very um you feel a lot of cyberpunk feels like it erases disability and so yeah because i just think of people using computers that do everything for them no so it's i think it's interesting because we're we're taking in this case with cyberpunk, it's like, oh, everybody has adaptive devices. Everybody's been turned into a robot, so does disability exist? And my argument is that, yes, disability does exist. Okay, and I, I think that's, you know, because we've obviously seen more advances with, the, you know, like the bionic technology, basically. You know, where the there's um, people now have the hand um, and limbs where they're working on being able to actually make the movement happen with their thoughts. Right. And I realize this is like in its infancy, but they're getting there. Well, and uh, there's also the fact that there's the, uh, the bionic eyes that are now existing, which are supposed to be able to be linked up into your brain. Uh-huh. Um, but one of the questions that I've asked, and I haven't been able to get a straight answer on this, is whether or not these bionic eyes, which are, you know, the idea is that eventually they could be linked up with things like Google Glass. But that raises my question of whether or not these things could be hacked. I think anything connected to the internet could be hacked. Right. And so I'm not really into a universe where I where eyesight can get hacked. That doesn't make me happy or comfortable. <laughs> right. And they would, they would sell it to you the same way that they've sold, um, like, roadside car assistance. Mm-hmm. To, to people when Bluetooth technology, right? It, you know, they sell it as a as a convenience. As a what if you were in this terrible situation? You know, what if you were stranded and your cell phone was dead? Um, because for a while, their cell phones answered every plot problem there was. You had to have a cell phone go d- battery die, or you couldn't finish your plot. Right. So now it's like, okay, but now the cars can do everything and the cars have Wi-Fi. Um, and, you know, some of the some of the funniest moments of leverage are watching them break into this is one of my favorite TV shows. It's I love Netflix. leverage. I need to finish watching it. Yeah. So um, I talk about it often because I love their their plots are so incredibly clever. But when they have to break into cars, they're not breaking into cars that are easily hot wired they have to break into cars with like the most powerful anti-theft protection against them and and they prove that you know these things can still be done um the other thing that's great about leverage is that they built a group of thieves that had skill they had all a good a great skill set but by the same token they still screw things up sometimes (laughs) Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, there was 
a, a wonderful episode with Parker where we get to see her dad. It's basically her adoptive dad who was the world's best thief and he was the one who trained her. I remember this episode. And they have to go bail her out because she's trapped in a building because she made a call, you know, to take on the job herself instead of just assisting him. And she gets into trouble. Yep. She gets, you know, so she gets trapped and the team has to go save her. And it's still a whole big team effort, um, including things that she needs to do to help get herself out. Yeah. So these sorts of plots are amazing because, um, I mean, all of them, we see them all as very abled bodied people, but they're still characters that have flaws. Like, you know, Nate is a raging alcoholic yeah. and, um, you know, Hardison overthinks things and makes things too complicated. And, you know, and Parker just doesn't understand people. You know, she's cold and literally can't identify with anybody until the end of the show. Um so, I mean, Sophie is basically, you know, I guess, consi- like, the most humane of them. She's, yeah, well, I, and I, you know. I also just think that there's, there's, um, there's a story there. I think this is true for all writing, too. Like, if you look at Leverage as a good example, all of those characters have their flaws. None of them are disabled in the way that, say, the, the crew of Sneakers has a blind guy. Um, but if you were to do, le- if you take the concept of leverage and you were to say, can I do this with a bunch of disabled people? You actually could. Leverage would yeah. still be the same exact show with a group of disabled people. So I- Yeah, they would. And they're, I mean, you know, seriously, those creators were phenomenal. Right. And so I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is if you're a creator and you want disabled characters in your story, what you should do is look at what you're already writing and say, why aren't these characters, why isn't one of these characters disabled? Would it change my story? Mm-hmm. Or- and they, they sort of did one with a temporary situation. And I, and I realized this. It's OK. I don't care. This is the sort of thing that sounds insensitive, but they had Parker like break her leg or her arm or something or, or one arm and one leg. And she was stuck in the office. And, um, and then there was like a, basically like a home invasion. So, um, so they gave Parker, who is this incredibly physically dynamic person. She's does, she's like a gymnast and they took away her mobility for one episode and they still had to it's like okay now what is the character parker without her mobility yeah and i mean that's the thing i think that it's really great to ask those kinds of questions yeah the most they did though was nate's alcoholism yeah um because that ran through every every season um and they've had him very drunk and they've had him try to get sober and um so but i think um i think as far as able-bodied people putting themselves in a situation i think that that one parker episode was pretty um pretty great at it at showing like okay first of all my team doesn't even believe me so i'm kind of on my own here yeah 
And tem- and I mean, this is something that I think is important for people to realize, is that temporary disability is still disability. When, when you have a temporary disability, you've still experienced a disability, but by that same token, it doesn't mean that you understand the whole disabled experience. Right. And getting back to Rogue, I know one of the things they often do, and for some reason, I guess, just because it's hard to come up with X-Men plots, is they talk about finding a cure. Oh, God. Yep. And um, there was an episode of House where there was a boy, he was a teenager and a wrestling star for his high school. And um, while he was getting surgery for something else, they gave him one of those implants to give give him hearing for the first time. Uh, They gave him a cochlear implant, yeah. That was it. And, um, you know, by the end of the show, they they removed it because he didn't want it. It wasn't his life. It wasn't what he knew. He didn't know how to adjust. Well, Uh, what I liked about that episode was that they acknowledged that cochlear implants are not the same as hearing. uh Uh-huh. And I I say that because it's very important because... Cochlear implants, if you go on, say, um, Wikipedia's cochlear implants page, you can actually listen to Beethoven's Ninth, I think it is, uh, on that website, as if it were through a cochlear. And it sounds completely different. Because cochlear implants are not the same as natural hearing. And they never will be. And that's really important for people to realize. Um, maybe someday the technology will catch up and it will be exactly the same as wearing a hearing aid. But right now, the best approximation for hearing loss is wearing a hearing aid. Okay, so these are good things for people to know when they're if they're working on any of those kind of characters. Um, cochlear implants are also a really political issue. Why is that? Um, So the deaf community is, many parts of the deaf community, that is, believe that being deaf is not worse than being hearing. It's just different. And um, so there's the argument that, and I actually do see this, people who are not, who are born deaf or or who gain deafness and then get it fixed aren't able to participate in deaf culture, which is a very vibrant community. It's a very strong, tight-knit community. You can't participate in that community if you don't actually have deafness. So you you can't just be hearing and participate in that community. Unless if you have a child of deaf parents. And even then, some children of deaf parents don't feel like they're welcome in deaf community spaces. So if you want to write about cochlear implants, I I think it's vital that you do research into what cochlear implants mean to people. Because one of the big complaints is that parents will put cochlear implants into their children when the children don't have an understanding of what that means and don't have the ability to give consent or say no. Um, because they don't know what the deaf community is or how that will affect them, and whether or not they feel like deafness is important 
to their uh, whether it's important to their identity. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I think that can be questioned for a lot of things that children go through. Absolutely. You know, I mean, people talk about that even with you know, like circumcision. Yep. Um, the but when you are the parent, you are making that call. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I just think it's important for people to read, especially about cochlear implants, that people read that and think about it. Because it is really um, contentious right now. Okay. So when you're doing research, then it's not only on the mechanics and the biology and anatomy, um, it's but you have to you have to understand the social um, comings and goings. You need to understand at least if it's in the deaf community because the deaf community is such an important community that there's something very important there that people need to know about if they're writing about it. Um, it's not as much of an issue in say the blind community. We know each other, but it's not the same. Like, it, it's not as, uh, it's not as much of, of an identity community. Um, that being said, people have asked me if I'd want to just have my uh, vision restored. If I, if, if I could wave a magic wand and just be sighted and be hearing, would I do that? And I wouldn't. And people ask me why. And, well, if we could wave, wave a magic wand and we could go back to 1984 and have my mother not get rubella and have me never have been exposed to German measles in utero and I had been born fully sighted, that would be one thing. But my disability has been so much a part of both my upbringing and my life experience and who I am. And, and yes, also what I do for a living. I mean, I, I'm a disability access coordinator. I write about disability in game design. I do consultation work. I wouldn't lose the part of my identity that has helped me find my career. So if if you had the, you know, if there was the surgery that existed and you didn't have financial considerations, you were just able to get it, do you think that the communities like at Comic-Con and Gen Con, do you think they would have a problem um, if you still spoke on these issues? Well, I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel like I could speak for the disabled community if I were not a member of the disabled community. Okay. Um, because I wouldn't, I, I, I would not be experiencing the things that they experienced after that surgery. I mean, granted, it's a little bit more complicated because it's not just fixing my eye. It's also fixing my brain. Uh Um, Because my brain is, uh, it rewired itself. Um, It rewired itself to see out of one eye. So in addition to being able to open up the eye that no longer works, we would also have to get my brain to acknowledge that there is another eyeball there. Okay. These are some incredible points that you've brought up today. So I'm really glad that we got to do this during a time when people are focused on their writing and their character development and plots. Um, I know that um, on the NaNoWriMo message boards, there are different forums for 
asking questions like this. I mean, I, you could ask anything right there. I, you know, I have it open right now. And there's outdoor games for disabled child. <laughs> is the, the, you know, somebody's looking for advice for their plot. So, um, and the problem is I think these forums are only open during the month while it's like, you know, the, the, the challenge is actively going on. I don't think you can get to them the rest of the year. Um, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. You might be able to read them, but I don't know that you can add to them. Um, so are you actually a registered NaNoWriMo user? I am not. Um, I, due to my low vision and um, just my career, I actually don't participate in NaNo. Only because I have so much other stuff going on. And that's a good thing, though. You're very busy. Yeah, I am very busy, but it's definitely... People have been like, oh, why aren't you doing nano? I'm like, well, because I have I'm, hmm, I have word counts I have to make that are not related to something I just started. So I guess my nano project is finishing the novel. But the novel is 48,000 words now, and it should be done probably in the next two weeks. Well, the first draft. <laughs> right, sure. And I've been working on that since August. Okay. And um, so where can people find you and get more information so that, you know, if, if anybody's doing a shout out or looking for advice on blind, uh, blind gaming for themselves, their kids or their characters, where can they find you? So you can find me at Snarkbat on Twitter. Uh, S-N-A-R-K-B-A-T. Um, you can find me on Facebook either as um, Elsa S. Henry, there's a fan page, or at Feminist Sonar's fan page. And um, you can come to FeministSonar.com. And if you like what I do, uh, feel free to drop by the Feminist Sonar Patreon, and uh, I'd love to have your support. Okay. This has been fantastic, Elsa. I, I really appreciate your time. I'm glad that I could um, join you. Yeah. So now I, I have to, to make my own decision as to whether or not I, I give my character this prosthetic limb that I was originally thinking of. <laughs> I'd like to. I'd like to. I just, um, I don't want to screw it up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, it, and if you want to send me questions, feel free to do so. Okay. Okay, well, good luck with your, your new projects and the new game development. Thank you. And um, I will definitely find you on Twitter, as always. Awesome. And you guys can follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber. And I, of course, also have the Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked. So um, I hope everybody has a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, I'm not sure what the show schedule is going to be for the rest of November. But anyway, uh, there's holidays and things to consider. So um, you know where to find me. And as always, I'll keep tweeting favorite episodes of the year. If anybody else has like a favorite episode or theme that was covered this year, I would love to hear it. Love to hear your feedback on that. So give me a shout. And um, as always, be safe. Have a good time. Don't forget, you can find Elsa on Twitter as well at SnarkBat. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.